Hey, Leslie. Hey, Steph. How are you? I'm good. So you got your vaccine yesterday. <laughs> I did. Round one. Round one. Yeah. I did. Yeah, it was super exciting. How do you feel today? I feel good. Yeah. Uh, my arm is sore. Uh, yep. Which is to be expected. Yep. And exactly. I felt maybe a little tired, but I came to work and it's been fine. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, today we have an awesome guest. Yeah, we really do. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Tim Leahy came and talked to us all about the vaccine, about pretty much everything about it. Yeah, it's a really elucidating interview, and we're really excited to share it with you guys. And I feel like there's not a lot of these that. We're like, okay, yeah, you could go share with your friends and family, but I do feel like this could be one of those that uh, other people um, out in the community might be interested in hearing, uh, just because it answers a lot of really great questions about the vaccine. Important questions, and it gives gives some talking points to a lot of questions that people might have. So we really hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoy. We really hope you have a great holiday. It's a little different this year. It is a little different this year. But I do um, think that there is a huge bright light at the end of this tunnel. Agree. 100%. <laughs> and that 2021 is going to be spectacular. Yeah, so, we'll usher in a, a bright new year. So we hope all of you are doing well, are healthy, safe, and, and safe, and have a great new year. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Jingle bell, Yeah, so we're here. We're going to talk, hopefully, about the vaccine. I actually had a dream about it last night. Wow. <laughs> about receiving the vaccine, about how it was distributed. It was like this whole very elaborate. So apparently it's on the forefront of my, my mind right now. <laughs> yeah, I think so. This is getting under all of our skins, I think. Exactly. Yeah. So why don't, we, why don't we start, Tim, with um, you just sort of telling everybody who you are and what you do here at the hospital. And really, we kind of want to dive right in and see if you can elucidate for us a little bit about the differences between the mRNA and then the AstraZeneca vaccine. And maybe we'll start there. Okay. I am Tim Leahy. I'm an infectious diseases doc and ethicist at UVM Medical Center. And a common question that's asked is, how are the mRNA vaccines like the Pfizer vaccine that was recently approved different from typical vaccines? Typically, uh, you know, an influenza vaccine is probably the best example. It contains uh, little proteins and sugars that are uh, part of what an influenza or what an influenza infection would look like. The influenza yeah. vaccine is the one that we know the most, and that contains pieces of the virus itself so that your immune system can get a look at it and mount a response that provides protection. The mRNA vaccines are different because what they include instead is some of the mRNA genetic code of the virus that then goes into the cells of your body and are turned into a protein by your own body. And then you respond to that. And the reason why that's helpful is partly that the vaccine is much easier to make than usual vaccines. And so that's probably why an mRNA vaccine was first to market. And also your body knows how to make gobs and gobs of protein out of mRNA. For instance, the hair most of us grow <laughs> originally from mRNA. Not working for me on my head, but he's got a lovely hairdo. <laughs> Full head, yeah. Full head. You know, if you can't 
can't grow the hair, at least you can polish it, right? <laughs> right, that's right. So in terms of the mRNA piece of it, how does your body like, create a protein that it then responds to? So how does it say, okay, we don't, we don't like this protein, we're going to amount an immune response that's then going to protect us from whatever virus is out in the world? Because typically, you know, we make something, it doesn't usually then we create like a reaction to it. Typically. Yeah, that's right. So if your body is actually turning this vaccine mRNA into a protein, a common question is why doesn't your body then think that that protein is part of itself? And it turns out that the immune system is already programmed from birth to know the difference between a protein that is itself versus a foreign invader. And so even though the body made this protein, the sequence of the protein is the sequence of a virus. Okay. And the body okay. can still tell the difference and it still says, what? And it freaks out and <laughs> yeah. makes an immune response that confers protection from uh, this disease. So do you think then with that in mind that there is more of a chance of having an autoimmune issue later from an mRNA vaccine versus a, a, typical, a vaccine. typical vaccine? I don't really believe that that's a big risk. I think it's it's a theoretical concern that I'm glad people are looking for, because of course you'd hate to miss something like that. And so far, at least in the 40,000 people studied, they haven't seen it, but they're going to keep on looking. But I'm not, I'm not super worried about it. Uh, yeah. Partly, mRNA is used every day in all of our cells to do stuff. And so yeah. it's such an ordinary thing. I think it's unlikely to cause problems. And the viral protein that it's making is different enough from so many things that I think it's really unlikely to cause mischief. You know, that's me looking into my crystal ball a little bit. Right, and saying, right. And it's, the only way to know for sure is to watch. And viruses that we that we get the regular way, which say COVID, there's no there's no chance to say we wouldn't have an autoimmune reaction to ha actually having the actual virus. Also, like the the risk is also there with getting a virus as it is with getting a vaccine. Like, am I correct in saying that? In yeah, ways? this is a really key point. So, you know, most infections don't cause autoimmune problems, but it looks like COVID does. Right. There was actually a big study that came out looking at how common it is for people who had the illness itself to develop autoimmune antibodies against lots of things. So for me, I kind of, I look at it and I say, well, one, this vaccine looks to me like it's very unlikely to cause an autoimmune problem. And so far, we haven't seen it. And the disease that it protects people from does. going to bet on what's going to protect people from autoimmunity. It's getting the vaccine. Right, right. right. I right. think that's a really that's a really interesting point, because I think a lot of people are sort of bringing that up right now, at least in the nursing community. That question's getting kind of thrown around a little bit. Weigh your risks, you want to get the vaccine. <laughs> that, that looks like a better risk. You know, and it gets to the, the question that somebody's asking. I think it's really natural for somebody to say, is this vaccine safe enough? You know, that right. that's the question they ask. And I really think that's the wrong question. The question is, what's the bigger risk? And for yeah. me, that's a no-brainer. COVID-19 is by far a bigger risk than this vaccine. Right. That's good. Right. That's good to put out there. Especially as 
an infectious disease expert, it's yeah. a really important message to hear. Because, I, I mean, we kind of were discussing, Leslie and I, before, there's the, I hate to say the political spectrum out there, but there is a lot of misinformation. And I think we just naturally, as human beings, we kind of get brought into that. And so, like, our first thought is, okay, is this safe? How do we know it's safe? Even as healthcare providers, right. we're are constantly dealing with that. And those vetting, vetting the information, right? And And it's important for us to know what then to support and then educate our patients with right because we get asked every single day you know and and i think that actually is is why i hope that part of what we learn as a society this year is who to trust about what thing you know each of us has political leanings and so that i think should influence how we think about taxes or funding for the military or you know whatever (laughs) some political issue when it comes to what anti-cholesterol medicine should I take? Or should I have a blood thinner after my atrial fibrillation? Should I have a COVID vaccine? It's nurses and doctors and healthcare workers who I go to on that, not politicians. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Kind of of talked about the Pfizer and the Moderna, which are both the mRNA. Is AstraZeneca a little bit different, made a little bit differently, more traditionally? The one we're doing, I guess we're doing the study here. Yeah, that's right. So AstraZeneca has a vaccine that uh, they are studying in collaboration with a group from Oxford and also other institutions around the world, including UVM. And this is more of a typical vaccine that has what's called a viral vector They've basically taken a virus, hauled out the disease-causing pieces of it, and replaced it with uh, something that'll make bits of COVID protein. And so this kind of vaccine has been studied a lot against lots of different illnesses and uh, is similar to um, things that have been used to create vaccines against, say, Ebola or HIV. And AstraZeneca, of course, is a you know well-trusted pharmaceutical company and Oxford and UVM are trusted institutions. We know less about whether the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to come to market and when, and that's because their initial studies had some slip-ups and there was an accidental use of the wrong dose of the vaccine in one of the studies that they did that actually ended up having better efficacy a lot, data than a lot the one of positive that, effect right yeah so that was that was sort of a big big surprise and so essentially what that's leading to is uh, them having to repeat some of their studies to really figure out how good this vaccine is and how safe it is so my guess is that we're going to hear about the you know we've heard about the pfizer vaccine we will hear about the moderna vaccine soon and it'll be a little while before we find out about the astrazeneca vaccine I still hope that it ends up being good news because one thing that makes the AstraZeneca vaccine promising is that it's much, much cheaper to make. And so I'm hoping that that's a way for people all around the world to get it more cheaply. Gotcha. Okay. Now, can you talk a little bit about the symptoms that people might experience after receiving the vaccine? I think it's good for people to be prepared that there might be some symptoms after the vaccine and what that looks like and that that is to either be expected or not expected. Yeah, that's right. You know, the the one only one we really have sufficiently detailed data about for me to be sure that I would take it is the Pfizer vaccine. Hopefully, you know, a week or so after we're speaking, we'll get similar information about Moderna. But those are the only ones that are likely to come in the very near future. And uh, and so I think it makes sense to walk in with open eyes about what is the likelihood I'm going to get some sort of side effect and to be able to balance that against the 
as you know, what I think is much, much larger risk of the illness itself. So it turns out that most people, more than half of people feel a sore arm. Uh, this is the case with <laughs> most vaccines. You stick a needle in your skin, it hurts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, other stuff that's more inconvenient is a lot less common. So about 4% of people had a fever. You know, people experience redness, but the vast majority of them thought it was pretty mild. Same thing with swelling. Some people got body aches, but it was much less. And so the likelihood that this was a big deal, you know, a severe symptom or even a moderate symptom was kind of like 1%, you know, enough to get you out of work for a day. Okay. And it lasts for, it starts up about a day or so after you get the shot. And it's usually over about a day or so after that. So it's short-lived. So I figure, you know, would I get a shot the night before my wedding or the uh, two days before my wedding? I <laughs> probably wouldn't do that. I'd probably make the timing not be that close to there. But on any other day, uh, I'd have no worries walking into it. Is that your litmus test? Would I do this the day before my wedding? <laughs> <laughs> you know, fortunately, my wedding was decades ago. And so okay. it's, uh, <laughs> hopefully not a big deal. But <laughs> sort of appeal to the ethics side of your job. And one of the things we're wondering about a little bit is, so we get this vaccination. Does that mean we are able to change our behavior? Do you think people will likely change their behavior? Should we continue to wear masks? Do you think that suddenly we are able to behave differently or people will behave differently because now they believe that they're vaccinated from this disease that we've been facing for over a year? And also that we have now a vaccinated population versus non-vaccinated population. That's going to be challenging. and So complicated. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) We're really throwing it out at you today. (laughs) So, you know, the first piece of this conversation in the near future is relatively simple. It turns out that we know that the Pfizer vaccine protects people from getting disease, but we don't actually know if it protects them from getting infected and thus from being contagious. You can imagine it could go either way. Either it protects you from getting it at all in your body, or it kind of converts you into one of the asymptomatic people we think are probably about 80% of people who got in, uh, infected in the first place. So That's because we don't know that, it still makes sense to wear a mask across the community, even if you have been vaccinated, so that you keep the next person in line who may or may not have been vaccinated safe. Is that because it's this mRNA vaccine versus like a t- typical? Because say you have the flu vaccine, you usually then don't spread the flu, correct? Yeah, so it, it turns out that it depends on the vaccine. So flu and measles are good examples of vaccines that make it so that you don't get infected. Hepatitis B is another example of that. There are other vaccines that don't stop you from getting infected, but just make you less likely to get disease. The Shingrix vaccine against getting shingles is a good example of that. And we we just don't really know with any vaccine until we kind of study what it is and what it does. So here, the first wave of studies that Pfizer did only looked at whether you got sick. They are now doing studies where they swab you to see if you actually picked it up or not so that they can tell the difference between infection. Right. But until then, it could go either way. And so it makes sense to wear a mask. That could change, though. And and that's when it can get super complicated. You know, what, you know, like now when I walk down Church Street, I know that people should be wearing a mask. And if somebody's not wearing a mask, I know that I can keep my distance. Or if it feels like a good moment, I can say, don't forget, you know, whatever. We, we can all make these social rules together. If it turns out that the vaccine protects people from infection, then 
it would be understandable that they would say, well, heck, I'm so sick of this mask. Why do I have to wear it anymore? And yet somebody else walking down the street or in their workplace may not know if they got a vaccine. So how do we as a society sort of help keep each other safe if it's not so obvious? Yes. I think that's going to be a complicated time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I always, I, my family and I watched Contagion, right, when everything was happening. It was a bad choice. But <laughs> where they, <laughs> very bad choice now looking back. But uh, there was a scene where they had like bracelets and they're like, wait, I have my bracelet. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't want to get to that point in our community where we're <laughs> yeah, right. having and, to make those decisions. Right. And it could also become a socioeconomic, I mean, hopefully not, but a socioeconomic disparity, right, right? where people who have better access to healthcare are getting the vaccine and those who don't have better access to healthcare aren't getting the vaccine. Yeah, you know, that that's a, it's a real issue. Unfortunately, the, the state has been really good about thinking about that. Uh, and so we're thinking about things like um, we know that the risk of, of COVID-19 actually is higher if you're socioeconomically disadvantaged. And so when distributing this vaccine, we're really thinking about, well, how do you get it to the clinics or the nursing homes or the other community organizations where people who have that higher risk are so that we can protect right. them even better. But you're right. You can imagine ways in which it's just going to be easier for somebody who works in a hospital to get the vaccine than somebody who doesn't. And so and the last thing I would want would be these already complicated conversations about mask wearing and all that to to get mixed with that even more. Right. So right. my guess is that there's probably going to be a period of time where even if people have been increasingly widely vaccinated, we'll probably say, you know what, it's still most polite to avoid these things to wear a mask. And then there'll be a point at which we say, you know what, the numbers look so great that it's just not necessary anymore. Um, an example is that in New Zealand, the numbers look so great that even without a vaccine, they don't need to wear masks. And right, so right. In place, I think maybe the numbers are going to be what guides us more than just a um, right. That's a good point. I hope we don't do the bracelets or, you know, do we get like a little V tattoo on our cheeks? <laughs> I'd, like, I'd go with like mustaches. I would pay to see that, yeah. I mean, if when we're coming out, out without our masks on, I mean, mustache is the way it's going to be. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. Have you been tested? Have you had to be tested for COVID? No, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. You, you either, Steph, right? Mm -mm. Yeah. And will you be vaccinated when it comes out? Absolutely. As soon as I can get it, I'm going to roll up my sleeve and be happy to have that protection. Steph and I will volunteer to give you your shot. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. A little bit of the status coming out, I can tell. <laughs> so kind of, I mean, we touched on this, but True. how do you think as nurses, we can be the best advocates for, for this? Being um, as public facing as we are. This is a super important question. And, and uh, for me, this goes to trust. If you ask American citizens, who do they trust? Nurses are among the most trustworthy people. You know, naturally, as a population, we don't trust politicians as much as we trust nurses. So I think if nurses take it on themselves to not only do a podcast or tweet about it, but think about which of the people in their social circle can they really strongly influence because they're so trusted and they can say, hey, this is a scary pandemic. We got to lock this down. We got to get back to normal life. And this is a pretty safe vaccine. And so 
come with me and let's get it together. That kind of thing is going to save a lot of lives, I think. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can really talk about this yet. You know, the vaccine is supposed to be arriving today, perhaps in in Vermont, which is amazing. Really exciting. (laughs) Yeah. And how it looks is going to look like in the hospital setting, how it might be distributed, how it might look like, you know, who's going to get it first and how people are deciding on that. You might not be able to answer that right now, but just those are kind of the things that I know people will be thinking about and, you know, wanting to curious about. Yeah. So, so as you know, healthcare workers and long-term care facility residents are going to be the highest priority people to get the vaccine. So the first shipments are coming to both locations right now. And so what's likely to happen, tables are going to be set up. There'll be a big box of vaccine that's been taken out of one of these sub-zero freezers, shows up in, say, Davis Auditorium. It'll essentially go down a priority list that Uh, leaders are finalizing as we speak that essentially is ranked according to how likely somebody is to be exposed to a COVID-19 positive patient, how likely they are to be uh, versus exposed to sort of the general population that might or might not be COVID positive versus people who are not COVID positive. And then also other things like how likely are they to be doing an aerosol generating procedure uh, versus not how long are they in the room? So nurses are in the room with patients much more than doctors are. So all these factors are sort of being weighed so that the people who are the most exposed, highest risk are at the top of the list. So that makes sense that it'll be, you know, the the COVID units um, either on McClure 6 or in the ICU um, going down to specialties that that uh, work on that, whether that's, you know, nurses that rotate through those units or or physicians that rotate through those units, respiratory therapists, all different kinds of folks, down to other people who sometimes take care of COVID patients, but a little bit less. Hospital medicine would be uh, a good example there and so on. And um, you can imagine that like within a given group, there might be people who are higher risk than others. Yeah. So just to use my group, you know, there's, uh, I think, 13 infectious diseases docs and uh, probably 30, 40, I don't know, the total number of of people who work in infectious diseases. But some of us do full-time clinical work and some of us do part-time clinical work. Some of us do more administrative stuff or more research than others. And so, of course, there are going to be some people, even within each group, that are a little bit more exposed and so should get it more. Some of us might have medical conditions that make it so that we're at higher risk. The challenge with those other things that aren't just about the group you belong to is that nobody really knows the details down to the minutia. Like your supervisor may or may not know your whole medical history. So the way we're going to work that is that supervisors will help help people sort out, knowing that we don't want everybody in the group to get it all at the same time because we don't right. want us all feeling crappy with the muscles. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so the supervisor right. might say, you know what? Uh, Cindy Noyes works more. Uh, she's an ID doc in my. We're a big reference. fan. We're a big fan of Cindy she's, Noyes. She's been here twice with us. <laughs> yeah, she's. Yeah, she's been here <laughs> she twice is a hero, right? So she works more clinical weeks in the year than I do, and so my my boss Kemper Alston is going to know that and say, you know, Cindy, you might want to go a little bit earlier than Tim, and Tim can be in the yeah. second wave, and so yeah. stuff like that will happen. And if it turned out that 
somebody that my boss knew that somebody had a bone marrow transplant last year or something, okay. they he could yep. he could sort of uh, whisper in the air, hey, you might want to be in this first group. But my guess is that we're going to be going so fast and vaccinating so many people that the little details like that are less important than everybody in that group's got to get shots and then the next group and the next yeah. group and so on. We offered to vaccinate Kemper too. We we let him know that we would. Uh, <laughs> when we interviewed him, we told him. <laughs> did, did he see the, the, the glint in your eye? And sort of- <laughs> he, totally did. he actually chuckled. He's like, wow. And he was like, wow, you got a chuckle out of me. <laughs> people want to stick a needle in that guy, huh? <laughs> We're not afraid. We are not afraid. So it sounds like, it does sound like we'll probably, it'll go through the hospital pretty quickly. In terms of the general population, uh, I know obviously nursing homes is going to be a top priority. It sounds like, you know, more high risk autoimmune disorders, those patients will then probably be maybe the next round. What does it look like in the general population with the vaccine? And how is that getting prioritized, at least here in Vermont? And let me add to that, people that have already had COVID, is it recommended they get vaccinated as well? Right. Yeah, so the the easier part of this is that if people have had COVID, as long as it wasn't within the last three months, they are recommended to have the vaccine because we don't know yet whether having COVID really provides the same level of protection as the vaccine does. We'll see, but it's unknown. So the the next two groups, yeah, are, as you said, people who are high risk living in a community who are either older than 65 or have a medical condition that makes them high risk and people who are essential workers school teachers, police, people like that. We need to keep keep things going in our society. Essentially, they're going to be getting the vaccine around the same time and probably through different mechanisms. You know, it's so much simpler to think about just in-house, how do we vaccinate everybody who works in this building? Once we get into the community, then we have to think about, well, how do we get the vaccine? Can we get the vaccine to the grocery store, to the firehouse, to the school, to all the places where people are? And in some places, is that just not possible? And so they de- do they need to come to a clinic or to a hospital to get it? And the details of that are going to boil down to which vaccine is available. And so the Pfizer vaccine requires the sub-zero freezer. And so it's whoever gets it is probably going to be at a hospital or some clinics or pharmacies uh, or very close by. Whereas the Moderna vaccine can be stored in a normal uh, refrigerator, and so it's much more likely to be widely available. So my guess is there's probably going to be this first wave where we're just giving the Pfizer vaccine to people either within the healthcare centers or people from the community who can come to our hospitals and clinics where we can refrigerate it and give it to them there as fast as we can. And then hopefully the Moderna vaccine comes out, and then that's just easier to spread throughout the community and get it to churches and grocery stores and wherever it needs to be. And okay. they're both two shots, correct? 21 right. days apart. So yeah. it's a little bit more yeah. complex. And the AstraZeneca, it. too. That's also a two-shotter. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you have to figure out wherever you get it, you have to figure out how to come back and get it again. So I'm going to kind of switch gears on you a little bit. The new FDA-approved BAM, I can't even say BAM, Lisuvivir. <laughs> yeah, BAM, Lenivimab. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Can you just talk a little bit about that and what that is? And because that will also something that is going to be available for a certain population of people, correct? Through this hospital. Yeah, that's right. So so the Vermont state is currently getting shipments of bamlanivimab in the from the federal government. And uh, and so it is available through one of these EUAs to people who want it. Really importantly, it's an experimental agent. 
And so unlike the vaccine where that is on the market and it is indicated and it's proven safe and effective, this is more like, you know, some of the early information is kind of intriguing, but we don't know for sure. And so if you want to be part of a a kind of an experiment to see if it works, you're welcome to. Um, But it's not something I want to overpromise about and say that will work. So what it it may do uh, based on the early studies is that it, it looks like it may protect people who definitely have COVID-19, who have a positive swab, and who do not need to be hospitalized. It can protect them from needing to be hospitalized, maybe. The challenge is that it is a bummer to set up logistically. It turns out that this is an IV infusion. And so you have to figure out how is it that you get people definitely a diagnosis, and then you bring those COVID-positive people who are not that sick, who do not need to be hospitalized to a healthcare facility so they can get an IV sitting there in some way safely near other patients. That is no small thing. And so as a result, the NIH treatment guidelines have said that this is not part of the standard of care. It's investigational. But if people want to kind of push the envelope, then here it is so that we can try it. So my guess is we'll see that there are probably going to be some people who are enthusiastic about it and other people are going to wait. Gotcha. Interesting. And it's for mild to moderate symptoms that are not hospitalized, do not need required With extra the hope oxygen. of keeping them out of the hospital. Yeah. I mean, that's the hope. And it's for high, it would be more for high risk patients, right? It's not for, for me who doesn't have any underlying conditions, doesn't have, isn't above 65, um, That's right. That's- in fact, I, I think the the most promising thing that I've heard of, I'll be curious to see how this works, is nursing home residents who have COVID. Okay. You can imagine oh, sure. in a nursing home, there is the ability to give the IV much more easily than some other places. They are already there. We know that we want... They're already cohorted. They're, yeah, right, they're, already, right. cohorted. they're to- already at risk. We want to protect them specifically because yep. they've just had such high death rates. Maybe that's a way for the logistics and the need to come together and we can uh, take care of those folks. Yep. But again, it's experimental. So I could see some some nursing home residents are going to want it and some won't. As infusion nurses, Steph and I are kind of excited about the opportunity to maybe do it. Well, I mean, and and as you know, we're having nursing home outbreaks here. So wouldn't it be great to have an extra thing that we can do to help people out? Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Wow, you're great to interview. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Now, I, I kind of just like logistical question. Are you just constantly reading up on everything? Like, I feel like it's a, I mean, I realize that that's what you do and are interested in, but it's a, there's so much information all the time. Are you, this how do you like, keep up with it all? It's like an infectious diseases doctor's like beautiful time to be living, right? Like it's, you yeah. couldn't have picked a better year. Yeah, this has been a wild year as an infectious disease doc and an ethicist. There have been more articles yeah. to read and more things to learn about than ever before. And it's, it's this funny mixture of feeling a calling. You know, I want to protect our community from this horrible pandemic, and I feel like I, I can. But also it's it's a little intimidating because yeah. I feel like I have to, you know, I have my mouth around the fire hose and then I get my lips off and then I come into the <laughs> podcast and then I reseal my lips to the fire hose. And <laughs> Well, and ethically, what we do as a group to protect other people, I feel like that has been so important in all of this. And like, how do you, you know, how do we get that information out there and really respect everybody? You know, like, I mean, I know as a healthcare provider, it's been easy 
you know, like, right, okay, right, these are right. the guidelines, but for a lot of people, it hasn't been. And so, and I think like we talked about in the beginning, sort of the political, political sizing about this disease has made the information even more difficult, difficult to listen to. So, you know, you have somebody who is looking at the political end of it and they're feeling like maybe I don't or do want to wear a mask. You know, they're deciding whether to wear a mask politically versus science. It's tricky. Yeah, that's it's such a great question. And I I feel optimistic about this. I mean, of course, it has been alarming to see the way political discourse has intruded on medical discourse in a way that I think has killed people. Um, and so that that's been really hard to see. But I think in time, people come around. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's I understand why if a political figure that, you know, one is attracted to for for non-medical related reasons says something about the science that it's easy initially to gravitate to what they say and to forget that, huh, who do I usually go to for my medical information? But over time, I think as nurses and doctors and scientists and other people who really know what they're talking about, keep on giving reasoned, evidence-based, fact-based information out there in a quiet, calm, reassuring uh, way, I think people come around and they realize, oh, you know what? I got a little distracted. I was excited around the election time. Right. But you know what? I make my decisions about my diabetes and my hypertension with my medical team. I'm going to do the same thing with vaccines and masks. And the more people trust the scientists about science and the clinicians about uh, clinical stuff, the better it's going to be. Right. Yeah. This isn't awesome. Really fabulous. We really, really appreciate (laughs) your time. (laughs) Yeah. Fun conversation with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Anything else that you want to put out there or anything that's uh, been on your mind that you would like to share? I guess I take a lot of hope from living in Vermont, you know, mm-hmm. for selfish reasons and for the greater good. We are showing that it can be done, that, you know, we do care about ourselves as neighbors. We are capable yeah. of wearing masks. We are. Our hospital has been really heroic in the way that it's protecting the humanity, the humanity, the community and the, <laughs> and um, the humanity. <laughs> And, you know, I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel that, yeah, there's still months ahead of wearing masks and we have to get everybody vaccinated. But can I imagine a time when Church Street's going to be full of unmasked face and we get to see our loved ones for Thanksgiving? I can. And I, I miss my my family who's out yep. west dearly and I can't wait to see them. And I think it will happen. Good. Oh, that's, love such, it. that's such um, I, a great message. <laughs> I'm glad that you have hope because I do feel like sometimes, and especially in this time of year, people, it's like pretty low right now. Yeah. And I think that um, it's good to have you as that person be like, no, this is, we're, this is going to get better. It, uh, we will be on the beach in the Caribbean <laughs> again. ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> good to see you. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye.